Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Mark, uh, Mark chapter 1. We're starting off a brand new book, and we, will, uh, we won't get through the first chapter in part because there's just a lot of setup to a new book that we'll get into, and Mark is extremely succinct with everything. So I was looking through other pastors, and um, I saw one pastor who normally I like because he's fairly succinct and gets through whole chapters, took five sermons to get through Mark chapter 1. So just bringing it down to a crawl. We're not going to do that. We're going to do two sermons on Mark chapter 1, but I am moving at a pace and I'm leaving some some great stuff out and trying to just keep the super great stuff as we go through it. So um, Mark is uh, succinct in the sense that Matthew was 28 chapters. Mark is only 16 chapters telling the exact same story. So you get a, a, a decidedly different gospel when you get to Mark. And frankly, you think, why do you need four accounts of Jesus when a, a courtroom only needs two? But I love how the Bible has these different gospels that really speak to different people and different kinds of people. Uh, Mark was not a disciple. He was somebody that was a helper. He was noted later on. And in the very early church, this was called the Gospel of Peter through Mark or via Mark. Um, so Mark gets mentioned in the book of Acts a few times. He shows up as kind of a helper. Um, he is, he's an assistant, he's an aide, um, and he is, um, he's presented in 1 Peter 5.13 as um, what Peter calls his son, Mark his son. So I don't know if that's a biological son, I don't think so, he's cousins with Barnabas, um, but it does mean that he's a spiritual son or a younger follower or somebody that Peter had discipled and trained. So as Peter and Mark had this really close relationship, um, it makes sense that Mark would be the right write some things down, partially because Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a good writer. He wasn't great with words. He was blunt. He was to the point, And the gospel of Mark is blunt and to the point. Jesus is presented as really busy. He's working all the time. He moves immediately from one thing to the next. In fact, the word immediately is in here, I think, over 30 times. Everything happens right, right one thing after the other. And Jesus is presented as tireless. He is without fatigue, and there's minimal discourse, there's minimal speeches, and Mark presents the actions of Jesus. Here's what he did. Because in the Roman tradition, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. And Mark is presented that way. It's more about his acts and his works than anything else. So the very earliest traditions accredit this gospel to Peter's speeches that he gave and Peter's and Mark writing them down or taking a record of those things. So we get a glimpse of how, how Peter would present the gospel to people, which you see in the first sentence, right? Mark then is, um, we should know Mark is, is called John Mark at different places. And John Mark was on Paul and Barnabas's team, Acts chapter 12, and he's like their assistant. He's like the kid that comes along and just helps with stuff. He sets up camp, he takes down, he makes some meals. 
He records things for them. And Paul and Barnabas always kind of traveled with somebody else. And they traveled together for a while. But then when John Mark left Paul's team, that kind of left Paul in a tough, tough spot because he lost his helper. And it really ticked Paul off. So Barnabas takes him with him to Cyprus, and Paul starts to take Silas with him on his missionary journeys. So it kind of splits, but the split is over John Mark, the guy who wrote this gospel. And so Paul, um, in Acts 15, didn't want Mark on his team anymore. And in fact, it got so um, contentious between them. Acts chapter 15, 39 says, The contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. It, it caused a huge argument in the church. And you'd say, well, the church should never argue. We should always be nice to each other and whatnot. Um, so I kind of like the glimpse inside the lives of these disciples because they weren't perfect people. They did get into arguments. They had spats. We also should be encouraged by the fact that even though John Mark stumbles, he's, re he's discipled by both Peter and Barnabas. He's brought back into the fold. He's brought back into leadership. And quite frankly, that time of him splitting with Paul because he wasn't running about doing missionary journeys is probably the time he sat down with Peter and wrote the gospel. And he's more known from this gospel than he is from his trips with Paul. So you get this, I hope it's encouraging, you get a character who seems like he was tossed out of leadership, who all of a sudden is not only brought back into the fold, but in his humility and in his service, he becomes great in the kingdom of God and gets to be one of the authors of the four gospels, an honor that most of the disciples didn't even have. 2 Timothy 4.11 at the end of Paul's, this is one of the last letters that Paul wrote. He writes, only Luke is with me. And Luke, of course, records a lot of Paul's missionary trips. But then Paul adds this point. Please take Mark and bring him with you, for he's profitable to me for the minister. At the end of Paul's time, they've reconciled. There's a relationship there. And of all the people in the church that Paul could ask for to comfort him in jail before he dies, he asks for Mark. That tells you a lot about who Mark is, that people love to have him around. He was a joy. He wasn't perfect. He's, he had immature stages in his life, and he becomes mature as he grows. So the audience for the book of Mark, where Matthew is clearly written for the Jewish people, and then we went into Hebrews, Mark is clearly written for the Roman citizen. It uses Roman models. It assumes a Roman thinking. Um, Remember, Peter's from the Galilean region, which is highly Romanized, right? There were lots of secular, there wasn't all Jewish people up in that area of the world. So you start to see that um, Peter had this call to kind of preach to the Gentiles. Remember, he had the big dream, and, um, and that shows up in this book. So Matthew, being Jewish, talked about Jesus as Messiah. Luke, a book for other, all the Gentiles, refers to Jesus as the perfect man, the man to be aspired after. John is writing to deal with the Gnostics and he emphasizes Jesus as God himself. Like, let's get that heresy out of the way. But Mark, writing to the Romans, presents Jesus as the perfect servant. In the Roman mindset, the ideal Roman was someone who served the state. And the mightiest of Romans were ultimately a servant to Rome and to Caesar. And the way you became great is through a servant's heart which Mark and Peter just use that as a way to share the gospel with people. Of anybody who's the greatest servant ever, it's Jesus. So Mark writes about this ideal Roman, the perfect servant, and 
presented it in a sense to the Romans where you care about. This is why at the beginning of Mark we have no genealogy because to the Romans, it didn't matter who your parents were. It mattered what you did. It mattered who you were and what kind of person you were and who you served. So there's no point in a genealogy in Mark because you're not talking to that audience. So also there's more Latin words than any other gospel in the book of Mark, which is odd because there's also more Aramaic words than any other gospel. So you've got people writing to Romans who speak Latin, but it's written in a fisherman's dialect. So it's also mixing in kind of the rough language of the fisherman lifestyle. If you're with a bunch of blue collars sitting around and talking, it uses language that would reach those kinds of people. Just straightforward, direct, and blunt. Um, there's no assumption in Mark, very little assumption that you need to know Jewish traditions. You're going to see in verse 3 that they're quoting the Old Testament, but they don't even reference the names of the prophets. They, it's, that's not what's important. What's important is Jesus was prophesied, that it was expected that he would come. Um, but it doesn't go into long discourses where Matthew uses an uh, Old Testament reference in almost every story. Mark really doesn't do that. And that's part of what saves him 10 chapters. So we'll get to Mark. That's just the setup to the book of Mark. You got your audience. You got who's writing it. Um, and, and again, I, I just love the idea that Mark being a helper takes probably one of the greatest evangelists in history who as a fisherman probably wasn't a great writer and helps him because I don't think Peter's gospel would have came through if it wasn't for Mark. And it's that idea of just let me be a servant. Let me take what, Mark, what, what Peter's saying and put it down on paper because it's, the history needs to remember this guy. So we get a lot of insights into Peter in this book. Um, because of somebody with a helpful heart. And I just think that's a precious thing, and you get a sense of who Mark is. I get the sense when you read this that Peter comes through so strong that Mark was really intentional about minimizing his role or voice as an author, that he didn't want his voice to come through. There isn't a lot of commentary in the book of Mark. He wanted Peter's voice to shine through. And that's how, as we go through it, you'll kind of, I, I hope, get the sense that that's Mark's heart was to get himself out of the way so the gospel of Jesus could shine through Peter's words and Peter's way of presenting it. So verse 1, let's dig in. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and all those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So you notice we're not even dealing with Jesus' childhood. Just skip right to the good stuff. It says in the, the beginning, verse 1, we see a lot of Gospels start with the beginning. Uh, John starts with the beginning of the world. Uh, Matthew starts with kind of the beginning of, of the kingship. Uh, but here the beginning is, is a context word. It's the beginning of the gospel. All of the entire book of Mark then is about the gospel. This is an interesting way to frame it. At the very end, Mark 16, 15, it says, And he said to them, Jesus says to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So Mark starts the book and ends the book with the idea of the gospel. In other words, that's bookending things. The gospel, by Mark's definition, is the entirety of this book. So when we say we're going to go share the gospel, it should, be, it should be noted that the Bible doesn't always refer to the gospel as a singular sentence or message. Sometimes the gospel's the whole story, the fullness of it. 
And that's the way Mark presents it. The word gospel we know is good news. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is the good news that we're going to point out. You haven't really shared the gospel in Mark's sense, or at least in this sense, unless you've told about all of these stories of Jesus. Here's what Jesus did. And the interesting thing in our society, most people have heard the name of Jesus, but they haven't heard all the stories of Jesus. They just say, I'm not a Christian, and they deal with Christianity as a whole because they've met Christians and they've rejected Christians or they've gone to a church and they've been hurt in that church. The gospel to them isn't just about repentance. The gospel to them is they need to hear all about Jesus, not about the church and not about other Christians. They don't need to hear about people. They need to hear about Jesus. And Mark presents it that way. His gospel is the good news, which is the entirety of this book. And they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word through the accompanying signs, amen, Mark 16, 20. That's how we end this book. So again, if this is true, the entire book of Mark is a call to action. And when you read the epistles of Peter, it reads the same way. Peter calls Christians to action. Get to work. Less reading, more doing. So less chapters. And we're going to get through the gospel so we can go out and live the gospel. The gospel is a word that is used amongst Romans as glad tidings or good news. So the Romans used this word too. And the gospel for the Romans wasn't about Jesus Christ. So when Mark puts that right up front, he's changing the word in the Roman usage. So when the Romans would use it, there, it's, if an emperor or a governor were to throw a huge party and invite people, what they would do is that they would send out a, a gospel announcement, good news, the emperor is going to throw a party. And later on in the Roman Empire, the emperor, the emperor was treated as God. Caesar was God to them. So God was going to throw a party. And that's how they would use the good news. They'd send messengers all over the land. They actually called these messengers evangels, the root word that we get for evangelist. And they would send evangels all over the Roman Empire saying that God was going to throw a party and that you could come to the party. So the festival announcement, that evangel that went out, is what made everybody happy. Because if Caesar's happy, we're all happy. If Caesar's throwing a party, that means he's not charging us as much in taxes, right? If there's, if there's fruit in the land and there's bounty. So verse 1 is written in the same Roman form as an evangel would be written in the Roman Empire. He's, he's changing it a little bit, and he's playing with words just a little bit. But the way Mark wrote this is he basically is making the claim that would read just like an announcement when Caesar throws a party. Only he's not talking about Caesar, he's talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you were going to say Augustus is throwing a party, it would be the gospel of Augustus, the, the, the manifestation of God, right? So when Mark writes this, He's calling Jesus the son of God or the inheritor of God or one who contains all of the attributes of God himself. So in one first verse of the book of Mark, he lays out everything that got people crucified in the Roman Empire and he's using their language to do it. This is so bold and in your face. Any Roman hearing this would know exactly what's going on. Caesar is not God. Jesus is God. And that's the claim of this book. It was fighting words. Make no mistake about it. That's why these books became outlawed in the Roman Empire, is that they're taking that claim. And, they, and Mark's picking a fight, which gives you a feel of who Peter is. He'd get up in a room and people would start throwing stones because they got angry about how he presented it. So he would get up and he starts saying, I'm here to present the good news 
of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, not God himself, like not Caesar, but God, and talking about a much bigger God than Caesar who dies. Jesus Christ, in the Greek, Christ is Messiah. The Son of God is where the authority for Messiah comes from. The Son here refers to one that inherits or claims the realm of someone else, the inheritor of God. And in that sense, the Son of God in Roman tradition and Jewish tradition is the one who has the essence of the Father. So, And we still think this way a little bit, like Grant being my son has my essence. And when I die, he will carry on my name. And that's the idea. Only God never dies. So the Son of God, who has the essence of God, is actually God because God's eternal. And God himself and God the Son and God the Spirit are all in eternal being in a trinity form. So when Mark presents this, he's presenting it in such a way that he lays out kind of that image of Jesus as being deity all in the same thing. Anyone who worships Caesar or worships the Roman state gets offended by verse 1, just flat out. Then in verse 2, as it is written in the prophet, he connects this Roman like punch to the face and then he backs it up with prophecy. Caesar had no prophecy. No one predicted Caesar would show up. So he deepens this to well beyond what humans are going to call a god, another human. But this is somebody who was predicted. And he's not just predicted to the Jews. It says, as is written in the prophets, the idea is that the prophets' messages were to the world. The prophets weren't just to the Jewish people. No other religion claims the words of the prophets from God and then has prophecies to back it up. And I think this is super distinct because Mark's distinguishing Christianity from every other religion when he says, as it is written in the prophets. In other words, he's not going to say anything new. All of this was predicted. And it sets up the entire book in, in a way. There's, there's over 300 prophecies that get fulfilled in the life of Christ. No other religion has hundreds of years of prophecy from multiple sources that all get fulfilled in one spot. It's absolutely stunning. And, and again, this is a blunt, this is why people would take five sermons to get through chapter one, is you could go and take time and unpack a bunch of those prophecies and make that point. I'm going to assume we've already been through Matthew, who lays out a ton of those prophecies in his book. Mark just says it in verse two, and he really doesn't come back to that. He just assumes that if you really want to dig into it, you can. He then quotes two prophecies. Um, verses 2 and 3. One is Malachi 3.1 and the other is Isaiah 40 verse 3. Both of them are paraphrased. Um, they're remembered by Peter, but he doesn't quote them word for word. I love this. I have a tough time with memorization. And when I want to share God's word with people, I often have to paraphrase those verses because I kind of remember them. And this is an era when everybody didn't have their own Bible in their hands. Like if they wanted to memorize verses, they had to go to synagogue on, on Saturday and then they had to remember what was said in synagogue. And over time, you'd start to remember some of those verses, but you often remembered them roughly. So modern historians critique this because they're misquoting. However, the expectation of exact line-for-line, word-for-word quotes simply wasn't there in the first century. Nobody expected that because the access to those texts was so limited. Luke makes Luke and Matthew make almost very precise quotations, but they would have likely had access to those documents. 
So it's fairly normal to do this. Malachi that's getting quoted is the last book of the Old Testament. It's roughly 430 years before Christ, where it says, I shall send my messenger. It's written out to point, the, point to the fact that Messiah was predicted to have a forerunner, a messenger. Someone would become before the Messiah. And it says, my messenger. Israel hasn't verified a prophet since Malachi at this time. God's been silent for Israel. So the fact that my messenger shows up means that there's going to be a prophet that shows up after a long period of not hearing from God. So when John the Baptist shows up, he starts preaching and he's crying out in the wilderness. He's preparing a way for the Lord. Matthew 11:10. Jesus calls John the messenger. He makes the strong connection in Matthew. In Mark, it's just stated, right? Right up front. There's a messenger that came behind. And it even came in the manner predicted. Without this sense of crying loudly in the wilderness, the idea there, the, the tone of that is that this person would be shouting. They'd be yelling it loud and clear. And notice how Mark points out the spread of John the Baptist's message in these verses. Like it gets all over the place. And he makes a point of that because it's important. Verses 4, repentance for the remission of sins. And then in verse 5, all the land of Judea, those from Jerusalem, they went out to hear him and they heard him yelling in the wilderness. They had to go to him. So this is striking that there's prophecies about this character and that this prophet does show up. John the Baptist is a Levite. Not that that matters. It's not even pointed out in the book of Mark, but it's just stated here that the messenger shows up. The messenger's job is to prepare the way for the king. Now, there's two kinds of messengers that do this. In the Hebrew world, if somebody was a slayer and they were running to a city of refuge, they would have people along that road that could be the messenger. So you would say, I'm running to the city, and you know maybe it's a slow guy like me, and you'd have a young kid that knew how to run, and they'd say, I'll get out ahead of you. And that runner would need to get to the city and let the judges know to be waiting at the gate to hear the case of that person. So you'd send out a messenger to do this. If the messenger saw anything that might trip that person up or get in the way, then that's not just. To get your day in court, it had to be a clear path to get there. So those messengers would take the time to prepare the way of the Lord. That's the Old Testament reference. Preparing the way of the Lord was in no doubt this conviction of, of what's going on, that, that there's something happening that the messenger needs to get things ready for. Another, um, another way that messenger was looked at, if we're looking at it through a Roman's lens, that whenever a governor or a king would show up to a town, they would send out messengers ahead of time because it was embarrassing for a Roman dignitary to arrive and not have fanfare in the town. So the messenger would go out ahead. And, and I'm presenting this one because I think Mark does speak to Roman sentiments sometimes. I like the idea of preparing the way of, to a city of refuge. But the other kind of messenger was preparing the way for the king. If the king's going to show up, then the messenger would go out, make sure there was nothing on the road because the king was often riding in a chariot or some sort of wagon. And when those wooden wheels hit a bad stone, you could crack the wheel and wreck the, the momentum of the king. And then kings got really mad and they hired new messengers. Right? And we don't know what they did to dispose of the old messengers. But to prepare the way is to make sure nothing would get in the way of that king. That everything that would be there, spiritually speaking, sin gets in the way of our relationship with Jesus. So there had to be a messenger that really addressed sin. And look at how Mark frames this in these verses. There's no doubt here that Mark is convinced of Jesus' deity and his sovereignty. 
So the messenger that comes before the king in a Roman sense has to clear that path. And the thing that's getting in the way for people to get to Jesus is their sin. So it has to get dealt with. The other thing they would do is they would run into town, sometimes with a stick, and the messenger, a Roman messenger, would come and knock on doors and tell people to get out into the road so there was a crowd waiting for the Roman dignitary. If there was no crowd gathered, then the messenger hadn't done their job. What did John do? He gathered crowds of people, verse 5, from all the land of Judea and Jerusalem, and people went out to him, all that were baptized. So John's presenting this messenger, John the Baptist, like a Roman messenger, not a Hebrew messenger. Does that make sense? And so he's setting this up like he's preparing the way of the Lord. And when he says Lord here, he's using the word Yahweh, the Roman word. Make no mistake about the connection between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and preparing the way of Yahweh. Mark transposes those things. This is where some like weird religions you know, try to separate God and Jesus. Mark doesn't do that at all. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord. And he connects those absolutely and in, 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 in with complete um, assurance. So you're clearing out the stumbling, stumbling blocks. You get them out of the way. And the idea is that people are there waiting for Jesus when he arrives, which is exactly how John the Baptist happens. All of his followers, he teaches them to go follow, to go follow Jesus. The use of the phrase, prepare the way of the Lord, in a biblical sense has only happened two other times in the Bible. And I just think this is great. Mark uses it the third time. The first time is Deuteronomy 19.3. You shall prepare you a way and divide the coasts of the land which the Lord your God has given you to inherit into three parts that every slayer may flee thither. The cities of refuge rule. Preparing a way for a city of refuge. Isaiah 62.10 also uses this phrase, which is the quote that Mark's using in this passage. Second time it gets used. Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, and lift up a standard for the people. That sounds more like the Roman version, doesn't it? So when Mark quotes this passage, prepare the way of the Lord, he quotes the second one, the Isaiah one, that we're going to lift up a banner for Jesus Christ. Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Like he's just going around saying we're going to lift the glory to God. So John here is exalted not just as a prophet, but as a prophet that was prophesied about. No other prophet was predicted in the Bible, but John the Baptist was. Perhaps that's why Jesus said he's the greatest of the prophets. He's the only the prophet that had been prophesied for. So instead of convincing the reader and arguing with the reader, Mark just assumes these things in the first couple sentences. Like the theology is baked in right up front. Uh, in a few lines, he tells us what Jesus did, and, and then he, he, it gets on to all the other acts of Jesus and, and, and what happens. So likely, the readership of Mark had already seen and, and understood who John the Baptist was. They knew who he was. So, making straight the paths. How did John do this? He did it by dealing with sin. Sin's the one thing that keeps us from the king. The one thing we have to deal with. The one thing that gets in the way of our road to the Lord. In fact, if we stop and think about the sin in our life, it's really the only thing that separates us from God. And if we're feeling a dry spell in our life, it is the hardest thing in the world for a Christian to just stop and say, okay, Lord, reveal to me my sin. Show me what I'm doing wrong. And that's hard because we don't really want to hear it, right? Like, nobody wants to pray that prayer. Lord, reveal to me my sin because we'd like to just be perfect. 
And God just says, oh, no problem, you're good. We're just taking a little break. We're getting a little space. But that's not truth. The truth is God always wants to be in our presence. He always wants us to feel in relationship with him. And so when we're feeling far from God, one of the things we need to do is hear John the Baptist's message. Repent. It's the one thing we have to deal with. Any preparation for God's work starts with repentance, confession, and baptism. And that's what Mark kind of presents. Mark leads with Scripture, even writing to the Romans. He leads off with God's Word. He puts God's Word up in front as prominent. God's Word starts all this. He bakes it into place. John cha- or Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. See how Mark just tells you exactly what was going on here? Then all the land of Judea, all those from Jerusalem, went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So John came baptizing. There's no need to explain who John is to an audience who had every knowledge of who John was. He was so popular in this area. He was the wacko in the wilderness. He was the guy with the scraggly hair preaching God's repentance. And people, everybody knew who John was. It doesn't even call him John the Baptist. John's so noted for his baptism, he later gets called John the Baptist, but Mark doesn't call him that. He just says, John came baptizing, and everybody knows who John was. So I like that because it gives me what I call historicity. I know I'm reading a first-person source. I know that the people reading this book had every chance to contradict, challenge, or doubt what was said because they were there too. So he's writing to an audience of people that were also first-person witnesses to the events of Jesus in the first century. And so you see little clues like that in there, but he doesn't explain John. He assumes everybody knows who he is. He doesn't give John's lineage like Matthew does because it's not important. What's important is what John did. He came baptizing. One, he baptized people. He lived kind of a raw life. He preached. And then verse 5, people repented. That was the fruit of his ministry. All we need to know about John is he preached it and people changed. And he preached the word of the God. And then it says, then all the land of Judea. Again, that's noted. It's baked in. There's roughly 3 million people in the Judean area at that time. So just to say that in the ancient world with the population of the planet at that particular time, this is a key spot where he's teaching and preaching. It's on a crossroads that if you want to go to Asia, Europe, or Africa, you will come through this part of the world, Judea. And so if all the people in the land of Judea had known about John's ministry, word had then get, gets out to the entire planet from this location. And so we have this idea. He's doing it in the Jordan River. This is also, this is, he's picked a fight with the Romans in verse 1, and now he's picking a fight with the, the Jewish people. Part of what offended the Jewish people about John the Baptist is that he baptized in the Jordan River. Why? Jordan River, according to the Mishnah, was not proper for cleansing, it was outlawed by the Pharisees and Sadducees as a place to do baptism. If you ever see the Jordan River, you'll know why. It's nasty. So people are like, oh, I want to go get baptized in the Jordan. And it's like, do you? Do you really? Have you seen the Jordan River? It's icky. It stinks. It's got one of those nasty bottoms to it. Like, this is not a place you want to go hanging out. But there's John getting into the mud with everybody else and doing a cleansing of baptism in the Jordan River. Mark points that out because John is disregarding the additional Jewish laws that aren't in the scriptures. He just doesn't care. If it's not in the Bible, it's not going to matter to him. So he picks this spot nobody likes, and he goes out, 
and he's an absolute powerhouse when he's out there. There's no nonsense to John. He's raw, he's unaffected, he's bold, and he's okay to tick people off. We know that because the way he dies is he points out somebody's sin to him. He's called a prophet because somehow he knew what that sin was, and he was able to do it with numbers of people. So they do it in the Jordan River. They're confessing their sins. This doesn't mean that they're confessing their sins to John the Baptist. They're confessing their sins to God. Because John doesn't forgive, God forgives. And so there's this idea of confession that comes in right at the beginning of Mark, essentially saying, I'm a sinner and I need cleansing. I'm not a clean person. In my heart, when I look down deep, I'm selfish, I'm anxious, I'm greedy, I'm lustful, I'm prideful. I got all of it. And it's mixed up in different combinations in every one of us. And John's preaching that same kind of message. And he came preaching the confessing of sins needed to happen. If you want to prepare the way for the Lord, you have to deal with your sin. And we don't exist in sin. We don't make excuses for sin. We get rid of it. Then you get to verse 6. Now John was clothed with, clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Why would Mark throw that sentence in there? Because the speaker matters as to how they live their life. If John was all posh and rich and wearing the robes of the Pharisees and living high on the hog in an era of Roman poverty, induced poverty on the Jewish people, then he's just another one of those hypocrites, you know, getting large S off of his preaching. But as a Levite, John dumps that, that privilege and he lives as simple as possible. And Mark likes this. Peter points it out in his teachings. And Mark goes out of his way to see it. This also signifies John as one of the, the prophets. Elijah 2, Kings 1, 8, he lives naturally because he doesn't need the things of the world. And that's what verse 6 is all about. The clothing looks a lot like Elijah. 2 Kings um, chapter 1, verse 8. And they answered him, and he was a hairy man, and girt with a girdle of leather around his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. This makes John the Baptist look a lot like Elijah. He dressed like Elijah. He lived in the wilderness like Elijah. Elijah, we're going to get to it tonight, goes walking up to King Ahab and says, you're a sinner and there's going to be drought and the only body that can stop the drought is me. That's the word of the Lord. And then he goes and he hides in the wilderness so they can't even beg for him to stop the famine. He, he ditches them. It is likely that Elijah hid in the very same hill country that John the Baptist is right now teaching in. So some people are talking, is this Elijah reborn? Is this him come back to us? When Jesus later on starts asking about it, um, they, Jesus says, who do the people think I am? And some of the people think that Jesus could be Elijah or he could be John the Baptist come back for vengeance. Right? They, come, they, they associate the two so closely. And then the food, the diet here, locusts, that's disgusting, right? But oddly enough, locusts are kosher food. True. You can eat locusts. They're protein. They help you survive. Um, I don't know if I'd start like it. Some people try to minimize this line because there's actually a locust tree in Israel and it's part of how they make kind of a Middle Eastern chocolate, which is a lot more tasty. I think that's a stretch. I think Mark is not that, um, nowhere else in the scriptures is he that obtuse with his language. Or it would say, he eats the chocolate of the locust tree. He doesn't say that. He says he eats locusts. So I have a feeling that John the Baptist would see a grasshopper there and he'd just pick it up and start chewing on it and get his protein. It says wild honey, same kind of thing. There's a number of types of honey 
in Israel, but out in this part of the world, bees thrived. And you could generally find uh, wild beehives and eat their honey. If you're going to go eating wild honey, however, think of what a tough guy John the Baptist is. you got to go in and take the hive. So John the Baptist, in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, would reach in and grab beehives and start eating honey. And I'm thinking they didn't have smokers and they didn't have beekeeping suits. They didn't have any of that. John the Baptist is like, I'll just get bit a few times. And I'm going to, you know, get bee therapy while I get my food. And he would get some wild honey thing. But again, this paints an image of a guy who's not only preaching a bold message, but he lives a bold life. And he lives a life where he's not going to get caught up with the things of this world. And that makes him credible. It really makes him credible to a Roman ear. Because to just seek after money was not the ideal Roman citizen. The ideal Roman citizen just lived for service. And this is how the Romans convinced people to be poor. <laughs> like, you're in service to Rome. Enjoy it. Um, but this idea that John the Baptist preached it and he lived it. There's limited record in Mark about what the John the Baptist said. But there's a lot here about how he said it. And that's important. Again, it doesn't matter who teaches the word, but if that person lives a hypocritical lifestyle, it's really hard to hear the word of God through that person because they don't live it. So he's not gaining anything. He's just serving people and he's giving his life into service. The world wants success and they want to see it. God offers a man where there's nothing to see. The only thing to see is God's forgiveness that comes through repentance. So Mark's saying this guy was hardcore. He lived hardcore. He dressed hardcore. He even wore camel hair. And camel hair, like you could pick better fur coats. Camel hair is not the fur coat that you would normally choose, right? So John lives separated. He lives with integrity. He lives like he preached. He defies the ungodly. He rejects sin. And he calls out, he calls out sin when he sees it. And people could say, John the Baptist, you're so judgmental. He's not judgmental. He's saying, here's what God's word says. In other, and that's actually not being judgmental. You're just communicating what God has judged. That's very different than saying, I'm going to start being the judge of other people. But to say, God says that's wrong. You shouldn't do it. And there are certain things, a la the Ten Commandments, that are super clear in God's word as to what's right and what's wrong. And so God's people proclaim it and they deal with the consequences. Verse 7, he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. And I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is about all we get from John the Baptist's message. He would preach entire days. This is what Mark chooses to share with us. This is what Peter shared with his audience. Because it's relevant what he's teaching here. John pointed to Jesus throughout his ministry saying he's mightier than I am. All Christian teachers of God's word should do the exact same thing. There is one that is mightier than I. And the word of God represents something that's so much bigger than the individual person. And as Christians, we always give glory to God. And that's how John the Baptist taught. He taught with power, strength. He was known as a prophet. So he had words of wisdom that, that, he could, that would be verified to be getting that title. And John just continues to point people to, to the Lord through that. More specifically, he doesn't just point them to Yahweh. He points to, there is one after me who's mightier than I. Not using the name, even though John would have known Jesus' name. But he doesn't say it because it's not his time yet. And John respects the fact that Jesus said that he'll reveal himself in his time. 
And I love that. The fact that those two would have known each other, they were cousins, they would have gone to family get-togethers. At some point or another, John the Baptist is utterly convinced that the king is on the way because he knows the king, right? He's not just doing this as some abstract faith thing. He's met and grown up with Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. But the respect he shows by saying, the one will come after me that's mightier than I. Foot treatment. To stoop down and loose one's sandals or to wash one's feet. We always think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. For a rabbi with their students, a rabbi could ask their students to do nearly everything. Collect work, wood, make a campfire, set up the tents, take care of this. Oh, there's people that come. You take care of those people. Rabbis could direct their students, a lot like a grad school where a graduate professor can direct their grad students, to do almost anything. Pick up my laundry, you know, reboot my computer and put the new operating system into it. So a rabbi could have their students really, they were like grad students. You could have them do almost anything. But in the Jewish law, there was one thing you couldn't ask them to do. You could not ask them to take care of your feet. It was beneath even the lowest of servants that feet were nasty. And this is because they all wore sandals. So they'd get little like sore spots and gross things. And like if you have any kind of gerbophobia or whatever, like feet were pustulant, nasty, wore-out things in the first century world. They would treat them with oil just to take the pain off. So to have somebody touch your feet, even in Jewish law, was rude. So when John says this, he's using an extreme example. The one who's coming, I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. So even as a loud prophet in the wilderness, he's saying, I am less than a servant. I'm not even, a, I'm not even worthy of doing the things that no one can be asked to do. I'm that low compared to who's coming. John sets that up with really blunt language. Oh, I have the quote here. Uh, this is from the Talmud, Keboth 96a, all services which a slave does for a master and a pupil that should do for his teacher with the exception of undoing of the shoes. I mean, that's the rule. They had it in writing. You can't do that. John uses then that to give so much more emphasis on who, who Jesus was. In John 3.30, we hear that John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That was his ministry. And I think that's all of our ministry. I, I love how Mike starts with this because we all should be serving that way. We reject the things of the world. We call people to repentance. We point out sin when we see it so that we can decrease and God can increase in other people's lives. I just, any godly person should be saying things like John the Baptist. John has... John the Baptist is presented as having nothing, yet thousands of people come out to hear him because he has something they want. But he's pointing people towards the heavenly kingdom because there's nothing on earth that John the Baptist has or owns that he can offer people. All he has to offer them is holiness, purity, and a lifestyle of truth, just no hypocrisy. How freeing that is to just live a life where we don't have fronts for people. We're just who we are. I can't. I keep thinking of Chuck Smith's wife. Was noted how Chuck would be so active all the time, moving around. So she nicknamed him Captain Zoom Zoom. It's just a great name, Captain Zoom Zoom. That's who he was, and he didn't change that. For everybody who knew Chuck, knew that he was just an, a powder keg of energy all the time, Captain Zoom Zoom. What a freeing thing to just be yourself. Verse eight tells the reason that he baptized with full immersion. It's an image of what's to come. The traditional Jews would sprinkle, we know this from the Old Testament, the sprinkling was to just take the blood of the sacrifice and just douse people with it or drench them with it. 
um, but it was to apply it on top of people. Mark notice notes that John baptized. It's a different word from the Jewish sprinkle. The word baptized means to be overwhelmed or fully dunked under the water. So this is different. And some Christian churches have even gone back to like sprinkling little babies, which I think is kind of cruel. Um, but the sprinkling is the Jewish word, and the word that gets used in Mark is to be overwhelmed by water, to be completely immersed. And so this is pointed out by Mark. It's a symbolic washing of sin. It's not a covering of sin like the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they covered sin or sprinkled it over people. In this sense, it's a full bath or washing of sin, to wash it away. So we're not, as Christians, we're not interested in just covering up our sin. We're interested in washing it out of our lives, cleansing from it. Full baptism was for Gentiles, and the only place it's used in the Old Testament is when Gentiles decided to convert to Judaism. So here's the thing. John presented him as not even worthy to loosen the shoes of Jesus, but then he preached a gospel where even Jewish people would get fully baptized, humbling themselves to being as low as a Gentile, like they're not even, their sin is making it so they're not even Jewish anymore. So for John the Baptist to be fully baptizing even Jewish people out in the wilderness means those people are understanding that to repent of your sins, to see yourself as completely apart from God and not even take your Jewishness into the, into the kingdom with you. I just think it's interesting, and that's why Mark's pointing this out. We get baptized because we're admitting we're a sinner. That's it. The only image of dunking yourself in the water is to wash it all away. I want to get rid of it. Does that actually get rid of all sin in their life? No, but it's a great public announcement that that's your heart's desire. You want to be on that path. So it's unique enough that John is not called John the Levite. He's called John the Baptizer because of that distinctness of his, of his ministry. So we're, we're going to pray for a day. We're going to symbolize it with a water baptism, but we're going to pray for a day when God actually washes all our sins away and forgets them as far as the East is for the West. To actually purify and cleanse people was not a promise of the Old Testament covenant. It's a promise of the New Testament covenant with Jesus. So he says... I wash you with water, but the one that's coming will baptize you, listen to this, with the Holy Spirit. Same word. You'll be completely immersed with the Holy Spirit. You'll be completely dunked with the Holy Spirit. That's pretty good news. That's a gospel. Hey, good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to come. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You will be washed from your sin. Jesus offers a whole new kind of cleansing, right? And there's no cucumbers and face paint or any of that involved. It's an overwhelming washing of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit shows up in new believers in really small ways. And we let that grow in our life to where it just dominates our entire life. But it's the thing that pushes us to serve and to help and to love people. It's the thing that humbles us before God as we do it. It's a reality in the early church that this is how they perceived it. Here's Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to him, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's, uh, this is how Peter talked, and it's how we see it written in the book of Mark. Like the, the, To get started, you want to join the kingdom, fully repent of everything you've done, reject it, get baptized, and wait for the fullness of God's Holy Spirit to dominate your life. That's it. Super simple gospel. That's really good news. I don't get that at the emperor's party. 
But I get that at God's party when he starts throwing a party. There's just this beautiful idea that we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Some Christians over the past, I think, have abused this verse because then they turn it into something that we can orchestrate. And, and we see this oftentimes on the charismatic wings of the Christian church, that because we've decided to have a Holy Spirit day, that people will be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and they'll fall over in the Holy Spirit and do all sorts of irrational things in the Holy Spirit, which frankly is a little creepy to non-believers. And I don't think when you went out to see John in the wilderness, you saw creepy. You saw people humbling themselves before an almighty God saying, I'm, I'm just, I know I'm Jewish, but I'm just rippled with sin. And I just want to get rid of it. And here's this guy passionately living it. And he says, what you got to do is repent of those things. Turn from those things. That doesn't mean they're gone right now. It means you're walking the other direction from those things. And get baptized. Make a public display of your desire to follow God and nobody else. He doesn't say go follow the Pharisees. He doesn't say go follow the, the Sadducees. He says go follow this one that's coming after me which means he's coming soon because likely those people are going to be alive to see it. Repent, get baptized, wait for God's Spirit. And then Jesus shows up with God's Spirit. Verse 9, here's God's Spirit showing up. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. All these other people had gotten baptized in John's ministry, but this one dude comes along and the Holy Spirit is right there right now the second he comes out of the water. In other words, there's no repentance from sin because Jesus didn't have any sin to repent from. So as Jesus doesn't have to turn away from sin, the baptism, baptism simply to associate with humanity. And to make a connection, he gets baptized because it's part of the command. He's obedient unto baptism. He doesn't need the baptism. This is a striking image where the rest of us have to wait until later in our life or even upon the return of Jesus himself. We're going to be struggling with sin until the day we die. Jesus didn't have that struggle. God's spirit is immediately there and present with him. And everybody can see it and hear it. So we... Mark leaves out a ton of details about this story, so I'm going to leave out a lot of details too. I just want to capture what Mark's thinking here. Jesus is not baptized due to sin, but to follow God's will for humanity. Jesus models it and shows obedience to it because we're supposed to be like Jesus. So we do things like Jesus. Sadly, when we come up out of the water, a lot of us can feel a great sense of relief, of joy, of freedom from sin for that moment. I don't think a lot of us hear voices from heaven when we come up out of the water, but you do feel this sense of, ah, something's different today. I've obeyed God even in the smallest of things like getting dunked in the water, and I'm so joyful to come up out of that water in obedience to God. Notice in verses 9, 10, and 11, Mark involves the full trinity here. We see the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're all part of this moment at baptism this deity that shows up. Mark involves sight, touch, and hearing, that people receive this with their senses. He saw the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit descended or alit. The word therefore descended upon him in verse 10 is as a bird would set on somebody's shoulder lightly with a super light touch. And Elijah, when he heard a voice from God, it wasn't the thundering mountain of Moses. 
Elijah heard a still small voice behind his ear. Just a sweet, gentle presence. And so it says that it descended on him like a dove. That doesn't mean that they saw a bird. It means the way that that spirit resided or settled on Jesus was something that was super light, super gentle, super sweet. It wasn't the all-powerful voice of God that people run from. It's this alluring, engaging, attractive presence of God in the Holy Spirit. So you got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father speaks, and he speaks with power. And he says, you are my beloved son. Again, son for the Romans was someone who was to inherit and take on the essence of someone. So that alignment that God's showing is speaking to the Romans in the audience too. In whom I am well pleased, you've done no sin. Because sin's the thing that displeases God. So when he says you're well pleased, he's, he's making that testimony that Jesus is without sin. So at this point, you got the heavens parting. The Greek word there is schizo. It's where we get the word schism. Uh, it is to cleave or to rend or to split parts in half, to sever something. If you're going to take a, a cord of wood and split it into campfire wood, you take an axe to it and you schizo the wood. So it's interesting that the Spirit of God descends like a dove, but the sky cracks like an axe hacking through it, right? So power combined with gentleness. That's the word we get for what the sky looked like. And in Revelation 6.14, Isaiah 34.4, they both refer to unnatural events in the sky. At Jesus' crucifixion, the, 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 the sky turns red, right? An unnatural something is happening. So some believe this might be an ancient word for lightning. I think they chose this word because they had, they had Greek words for lightning. He didn't choose that word. He chose schizo. It split the sky open. I don't even know what that looks like. I can't even imagine. But there's this, just this interesting idea here that there's something happening. So the spirit descending then is this gentle light thing. The sky getting ripped open is a violent, forceful thing. And we still get these ideas. This idea of the spirit descending like a dove is used in almost every one of the artworks I've ever seen around the baptism. They actually represent the spirit by putting a little white dove in the picture. So if you wonder where the Calvary Chapel dove, why the Calvary Chapel dove is facing down, it's because it's, this is that image of the Spirit coming down on Jesus like a dove. And he comes down on all of us the same way. So you get the contrasting image between the two. And Luke adds in bodily form or that it manifested visually. Um, they could all see this happening. Everybody in the audience recognized God was preparing Jesus for the ministry as the Messiah by showing all these people. It's why Jesus had instant crowds. The messenger had successfully gathered the crowd so that when the king showed up, there was an audience to see it and hear it and feel the presence of God and manifest it. Again, one of the things I love about Judeo-Christian tradition is God never acts in private rooms. He acts in big public spaces where everyone can see what's going on. It sets these two religions apart distinctly. Um, we get a sense of how gentle God is with us too, how kind and how sweet he is with us. God doesn't overwhelm us like demons do. God gently persuades. He gently pushes. And if we choose to ignore and harden our heart to him, he eventually lets us go our own way to figure out what that path leads to. So God gives a much more gentle hand. And in verse 11, it says, Then a voice. God's pleased with this incarnation. 
everyone that's at present at this, and I like how Mark just leads off with this in the first 10 verses, everybody that's present at this, this baptism knows Jesus is not a normal human. Nothing normal about this guy. He's humble, but he's not normal. Other Gospels tell how John the Baptist actually like didn't want to baptize. Who am I to baptize you? And Jesus kind of explains it to him. Mark leaves all that kind of stuff out. But there's this idea that even the John the Baptist was like, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. Like, I look up to you. Physically speaking, Jesus is the normal Nazareth guy. He comes from a humble town. He comes from a humble place. He's probably dressed like a carpenter's son. Galilee's full of crude fishermen. Right? This region of the world, spiritually speaking, the heavens part, the spirit descends, and the voice of God comes from the heavens itself with praise and confirmation for this very normal-looking guy. Think of the image that presents to your average Roman citizen. Right? Think of that, just that presence. It's a very quick shift then in talking about Jesus. Mark will, in one word, verse 12, immediately... He will just dump John the Baptist to the side of the road and he turns the whole narrative to Jesus in that event, which is what John the Baptist wanted people to do. Just move towards Jesus. So we've got witnesses. Mark said that Jesus was the son of God, verse 1. The prophet said it, verse 2. John the Baptist said so, verse 7. And then God says it in verse 10. And so we have four witnesses. Jesus is God. From Mark's perspective, time to move on. Jesus is God. And so what did Jesus do? Verse 12, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Again, other gospels have this whole narrative about the time in the wilderness. Mark's like, it doesn't matter. We weren't there. We don't have to know all that. What we need to know is, A, that the spirit drove him. Um, That's the Greek word ekbolo. It is to drive something or push something. It's the same word they use for casting out a demon. You drive the demon out. You push it out. Some would even say the Hebrew uh, version of this is what the Israelites did when they pushed out the Canaanites from the Holy Land. Right? It was to drive something like you would push it with a stick. The Holy Spirit then seems to be having a very forceful effect on Jesus once Jesus has chose to follow it. He's compelled to get out to this wilderness area. So he identifies with sinners in baptism, but he's not a sinner. He identifies with sinners in temptation, but he doesn't give in to sin. That's the first two things of of Mark, right? Here's Jesus. He doesn't need to do either of these things, but he does. Hebrews 4.15. We just got done with Hebrews. For we have not a high priest which can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. This becomes the good news. Here's a guy who lives without sin. He's out there 40 days. That's a number of testing and judgment. Hebrews would recognize that. Romans wouldn't. So he doesn't get into it or he doesn't do it. He was with wild beasts. That's a supernatural claim in the ancient world. If you're out in the wild with wild beasts and they don't hurt you, that's supernatural. And Romans would respect that. They got along with each other, just like Adam got along with all the critters. Jesus gets along with all the critters. This is why I think when we get to heaven, we'll be able to have pet bears and tigers and other such critters because we see evidence of that, that when there isn't sin involved, humans and animals get on just fine. So I like that idea. My wife always laughs at me, but I can't imagine anything better than coming home to hug a bear. And there were lions and there were bears and there were such critters out in this wilderness that Jesus went into and they're just hanging out with him. But angels minister to him. This shows that he has authority over both the beasts 
and the angels. Jesus has authority over things that are higher than him and, and lower than him and in his incarnation as a human. And he then has, in that sense, he's still higher than the angels even though he's incarnated as a human. And, he's, and the beasts actually respond to him and they don't respond to normal everyday humans. This is unique for Jesus. Mark just makes the statement then he moves on to verse 14 with the word now. Everything's immediately, now, just then, drove out. This is Mark. This is the tone of Mark. It just moves. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Are you seeing a theme here? Jesus starts teaching exactly the same way John the Baptist taught and adds, believe in the good news. Believe that it's true. Now, after John was put in prison, Mark skips all the details of that, and he doesn't look back. Part of the gospel of Jesus in verse 1 is that he preached the gospel of the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is great news. We can be part of a body of people that are seeking after the kingdom of God. There's a time for this. It's right now. The time, the opportunity here is not chronological. It's used in a way to imply this is the right moment for it. It's actually a strategic military word. This is the opportune time to strike. So when it says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is at hand, the idea here is that it's right, right now is the time to do this. Not later, not, in your, not after you retire. Right today is the time to be part of this. That should be a challenge. If you're with other believers, you're in the kingdom. How are you serving that kingdom? What are you doing? This should be a challenge to sinners. If you're not with the kingdom and you need to repent and believe, get going with that. Now's the time to do it. There's no better time. So our response to the fulfillment of this good news is that we repent and we believe. The word repent there is metanoia, the root word for metamorphosis. Metanoia is about so much more than simply stopping sinning. It's to actually be essentially transformed like a caterpillar to a butterfly. Same being, totally different existence. Even different abilities because caterpillar or butterflies can fly. To enter the kingdom of God, one has to change from their path of sin and alter course to essentially transform. You become a new creation, metanoia. So Mark uses the right words. He's extremely accurate with his words. This is not a decision that we make or a feeling that we have. I think that's something in the American church we've really missed out on this. Metanoia is not a decision that we make, and it's not a feeling that we have. To repent in the sense of metanoia is to change our being and let the Holy Spirit turn us into something new. It is a journey that you take for a lifetime. It is not a singular prayer you say at one point in your life. And that journey never stops. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It means that we are transforming through each of those experiences. We have a complete alteration of ourselves. The word believe there is pistuo. It's to be persuaded or to have confidence in a thing. So to be persuaded requires the use of the brain, the intellect. And to have a confidence in a thing is another way to say you have faith in it, you believe. And faith is exhibited through action. It's not just in the mind, it's the action that you take based on your decision. So if I believe something's going to happen in the stock market and I trade stocks accordingly, I, I have faith that that belief of the future is going to come true, so I act accordingly. Otherwise, it's just an opinion. 
The other thing with believe pistuo is that it's relational. It's built over time. So that idea of metanoia, repent and believe, is that you transform your character and that you believe it over time. You build your trust in God through each experience you have, both with God and with rejecting God. And you start to see the pattern. I follow God, things go better spiritually. I sin and I have less God in my life and I feel like he's let me go a little bit. So there's definitely this perspective of Mark that it's not that God swipes us away from eternal damnation. It's that he's the hand that keeps us away from it. And metanoia is to cling to the hand, not cling to our own little web that dangles us. Right? And you start just putting your trust in something totally different. This is tough because everything in us wants to do things our way. It's our will that's the primary thing that we fight when it comes to sin. Our will leads us to sin. In anxiety and fear and trying to tell other people what to do, that all gets in the way of our walk with Jesus. So you get a combination of these words, repent and believe. And the way Mark's presenting this is that this is a repentance that is a set of actions starting a journey. So here, here's another way to look at it. If I called you up during the week and said, hey, come on over for dinner. And you said, yeah, I'll come over for dinner. That sounds great. You haven't actually come over for dinner until you come over for dinner. It's just words until you've come over for a dinner. And Peter speaks this way in his epistles too. Until you get, you care enough to get in your car and start driving, you're not actually coming over for dinner. You've just lied. So when you go to Jesus and say, I'm going to give my life to you, but then you do nothing to change your life, you don't ever get in the spiritual car and start driving to the kingdom, you're not actually changing your life. You're just lying to God. You're taking his name in vain. Don't do that. It's a bad idea. So you don't just say that you repent, you actually act according to your repentance and you faithfully and continually, pestuo, over time, believe that what you are doing is the true way to live. That's an entire lifestyle. Well, it would be so much easier if I could just say a prayer and I magically got into heaven. But God wants your whole heart, mind, and soul, just like he said in the Shema. He said it through all of history. He wants all of you all the time. And anything short of that isn't really there. Peter repeats this idea. I like going back and forth with First and Second Peter because you get to see how Peter actually wrote it in a letter. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. A sojourner is somebody who's on a journey. A pilgrim is somebody who's gone off on that journey. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, that you may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Be somebody that people can look at and say, at least there's one person who serves the king. Because there's so few of them out there. I almost guarantee that everybody in your life, most of the people at your work, very few of them are honestly following the king. And that there's metanoia pestuo going on in their life. Repentance for Peter is never about just saying a prayer. It's about a lifestyle. It's about living with grace and peace and love and the fruits of the Spirit. The rest of the chapter is going to list Jesus' actions and the works of Jesus. The single quote here gives context. So as he walks by the Sea of Galilee, I'm just going to pick up the disciples and then we'll, we'll wrap up with uh, verse 22 today. He walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you come, become fishers of men. Metanoia. I'm going to change you. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Pistuo. They believed him. And then they followed him. Right? So Mark gives an example of what this looks like. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were, all, who were in the boat mending their nets. That means to put your nets in order, to wash them, fix them, fold them, restock them, tend them, restore them. So that word for mending the nets has to do with everything that a fisherman would do to make sure those nets were ready to go for tomorrow. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after them. See you, Dad. We're gone. Jesus, first of all, I always wondered at this first when I was growing up, like, if somebody just walked up to me and said, hey, Sean, follow me. I would say, you're nuts. Like, no way would I follow this person. But maybe if it was supernatural, like they said, hey, Sean, follow me, and they glowed or something, then I'd be like, maybe I should follow them. But I don't think I'd leave my dad in the boat. Like, I don't think I'd just bail on my family for some weird glowing person. Like, this is an odd sentence, but when you, as I grew up, I learned a little more about this. Jesus likely knew these men. He'd grown up with these men. So in the same way that Mark leaves out a ton of detail in other stories, he's likely leaving out a ton of detail here. And that Jesus would have grown up in this area, and as a carpenter, he might have even built their boats. Right? So this is a, there's three million people in the region, but this town of Capernaum is this area that a lot of this ministry happens in. Jesus spends most of his ministry in this part of the world. So that said, some of these men might have been out at John the Baptist's thing, which we just heard, where they saw this baptism and they recognized Jesus and who he was, and then John saying, follow this guy. So when he shows up and he says, come follow me, there's a lifetime of wanting to follow Yahweh in these people's lives before we get there. So, and, and again, you can't put too much on this, the text here because it doesn't exactly tell us. But I don't think there's a reason to think they, they didn't know who Jesus was after the baptism thing happened. Because word would have gotten around about that. Hey, John's baptized thousands of guys, but he baptized this one guy? And God spoke from the heavens with a violent ripping of the sky, and we could see the dove land on it. Like, that's the story you come home and tell your family after being out at the Jordan. What happened today at the Jordan? Well, let me tell you. There's this guy named Jesus. And then you go out into work in your boats the next day, because, well, it's... You know, it's Monday, you got to go to work. And then this guy shows up and says, I want you to be my students. See ya. I heard God speak from heaven. I'm gone. Or even if one of these brothers was out there and it's like, I'm going to go follow you, come with me. The Chosen presents it like Andrew was out with John the Baptist. And I think that's plausible. Um, but the scripture here doesn't actually say. It does say Simon and Andrew are brothers. And it says James and John are brothers. The other gospels confirm that. I do think it's interesting here. In the other Gospels, they'll, right away, they'll use terms like Simon Peter. But in the book of Mark, they just say the word Simon. And I think that's really important. Peter remembers what he was before the metanoia. He was Simon before he met Jesus. After he meets Jesus, he's Peter. And he doesn't become Peter until even after the resurrection. Does that make, isn't that amazing? Like it speaks to the journey that Mark's talking about here. He hadn't been called Peter yet, so he doesn't use the name, but his friends, when they write about him, they use the name because that's who they know. They know Peter. So why would you insult somebody with the old name? But when you're writing for yourself, no, 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 I was Simon. I was not Peter. And when Jesus met me, I was still Simon. So I just love that they use the word Simon there instead of Peter or Simon Peter. 
Notice that they're working together as brothers, but when you see James and John, there's, there's an indication that their dad was with them and that they actually had servants and workers. That means that Peter and Andrew were poor fishermen. And James and John worked with a larger fishing crew or company. Their dad owned the company. So it, it, even in the terms of he's gathering four fishermen, you see Jesus gathering fishermen that would have been in competition with each other. They're fishing the same lake. And you can see to the other side of that lake, it's not that big of a lake by Minnesota standards. And so they're fishing the same lake. They're fighting for the same spot. And there's these guys that have a whole team of people working with them, likely catching enough fish for that whole team to get paid. And there's Peter and Andrew just working as brothers. Had their dad passed away? They couldn't afford servants to help them out. So you, you don't know how these four guys felt about each other, but you get some indication by how Peter wrote it is that there were some, there were some competitive elements here between each other. And we see aspects of that competition as we go through the book of Mark and even in the other Gospels. It says, for they were fishermen. This is stunning. Usually rabbis pick... Levites to train so they can become teachers of the law. In fact, Jesus isn't a Levite. He's from the tribe of Judah. And he, not only that, he doesn't pick Levites to be his students to teach the law. So the idea that he picks fishermen is really appealing to a worker person because God values and loves even people that just work hard every day. They do their job. They do it well, and Jesus actually chooses people from that class of life to be the fishers of men for his kingdom. And I think that's wonderful. Coming from a, a working class family, God picks these kinds of people. They are not all of the tribe of Judah. You will see later the disciples come from multiple tribes. But God doing that is not breaking the law because God established the Levitical law under Moses, and even before that he established that Melchizedek was a priest of God too. So this is not the same as the northern kingdom making up their own religion. This is God himself changing the rules, which would be wrong if he wasn't God, but because he is God, he can do that. So they become fishers of men. Here's what fishers do. They get up super early in the morning, like before the fish get up, because they want to catch the fish for breakfast time. Actually, I should have Dan talking more about this. Tell me if I get any of this wrong. But you got to get up early, and then you sit and work all day, and you throw out your net, you hope fish land in it. Sometimes the fish do, sometimes the fish don't. Then you come back in, and you're not done just when you hit the dock. Now you've got to clean the boat, put everything away. They're caught mending their nets. That means to wash them, fold them, repair them, fold them up so they're ready to go for tomorrow. You've got to put everything away. Frankly, fishing sounds like a lot of work to me. I don't know why anyone would pick it as a hobby, yet we have brothers that love this because some people have a heart for it. They're hardworking. They work six days a week. They're capable people. They work in teams. They're patient. They're hopeful. They're hard workers. They wash things. They fold things. They, they fix things. They restock things. They tend things. They restore people. So what does it mean to be a fisher of men? It means all of that. It's the whole discipline. And this is, I think, where people find themselves closer to God when they're out on a lake because they had to prepare to get out there they got to prepare, they got to repair things when they're done. And there's that time in the middle where it's you and the lake and the fish. And that time is equally beautiful. In the ministry, we do the same thing. We prepare for it ahead of time. We clean up afterwards. We check in on people. We do it six days a week, even seven days a week in the kingdom of God. And we, we're patient. We tend things. We fix things. We restore people. We heal things. We're hopeful that the fish will bite. 
We're hard workers at it. So to be in the kingdom of God and to be fishers of men, what a beautiful thought. Jesus says, follow me. That's the purest invitation you'll ever have. It was a traditional rabbinical invitation to a student to come and learn from a rabbi. Mark doesn't explain that because Romans don't need to get that. It's not about a set of doctrines or belief. Jesus never asks them to believe anything. He asks them to follow him. Think about that. This is the purest invitation we can get for the kingdom of God, and it's, it has nothing to do with a set of ideas in the head. It has to do with a lifestyle of following Jesus. It's the simple act of saying, I'm going to follow the king. I don't even know what that looks like yet. I'm just going to do it. And then the Lord starts to show what that looks like through his word, through other believers, um, through the Holy Spirit. It leads all of our doctrines and beliefs start with follow me. And what, what we've seen in the church is a lot of people that come into church because of a set of doctrines. And they're not following Jesus. They're following their doctrines. And that's a problem. It's dangerous. So this idea of follow me, we'll get the doctrine straightened out, but start by following Jesus and put everything else to the side. It's an immediate call to action with an expectation of gradual learning over time. We'll take you as you are. It implies a long journey, not an instant change. Again, that's everywhere in the book of Mark. Everything's immediately, verse 18, they immediately left. They immediately left for a lifetime of change. And that's the rest of the book of Mark. They left their nets, they left their father, they left, their, they left their work and they left their family. And sometimes those are the two things that I think call us away from the kingdom the most, our work and our family. Saying, you got you to gotta do this, you got to do that, you have to be here, we need this on time, this is due by this date. And, and for the people of God, you just say, hey, chill out, I'm going to do this on Sundays. I'm going to serve my king, I'm going to do what my God called me to do. If that's not okay, I guess I need a, we need to have some sort of reconciliation, but it's not going to happen on that point. This point doesn't move. They went after Jesus. Peter defines following much in the same way that Hebrews does. And we just finished Hebrews, so I'm going to, I won't use that quote, but I will go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, part of your Bible study in the next couple weeks as we start the book of Mark, go read both of the epistles of Peter and just get a sense of how Peter thinks. And, but 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to go to verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another and be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anybody speaks, let them speak the oracles of God. If anybody ministers or serves, let them do it with the ability that God gives you. And in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Amen. Peter speaks a complete transformative model of repentance, total change, total focus, all in. There's no accident that the story of the disciples' calling comes immediately after the story of the baptism in the wilderness. That when you decide to start in on that ministry, it's immediate. Jesus immediately goes and gets his followers because it's time to start the ministry. It's time to dig in. Jesus at this point is roughly 30 years old. So for 30 years, so this is an argument against sending your five-year-olds to be the salt and the light of the world, right? Jesus himself waited till he was 30 to start his ministry. He lived a, a sinless life before that. And I think the calling for young people is get your purity lined up before you think God's got some great calling in your life. Get your maturity together. 
metamorphosis, pistuo, believe, repent, get yourself aligned, and God will give you that calling in, t- in due time. First, Jesus led only four people. That's it. Think about how Mark's setting this up. He, there's only four people that Jesus has following him. But that four people is going to turn into 12, and that 12 people is going to turn into a crowd, and then it's going to turn into millions through the last two millennia. Millions of people, and he just calls four people. Think of the humility in that. A lot of times Christians think, I want to go out and preach it to the world, and I want thousands of people to hear the good news. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus only started with four people, and they were two sets of brothers. He started with people he knew well, probably grew up with these guys. To me, that's such a relief. We don't have to preach to the millions. God does that. We have to be faithful in the things God's given us, the family members that we have, the friends and the networks that we have. We need to be faithful to those things, first and foremost. So that means pouring our life into those people as we follow Jesus Christ. And then we learn from one another. It's not a conquest. There's no public square. Jesus doesn't go out to the marketplace to start his ministry. He starts with people he probably knew. And then he says, why don't you guys follow me? I'm going to show you how to live. And that's it. That's the the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He did not speak at an apologetics conference. He didn't have a hit YouTube video. None of that. Didn't even start a podcast. Jesus just started with four guys saying, hey, why don't you come follow me? I'm going to show you the kingdom of God. Really humble, really simple. As a dad, I only got two kids. That I, you know, I, that's my starting point. My wife, who I care for and love and minister to every day, that's my, boy, I'm up to three already. Like, how many more do I need? Well, I got Sam, and we're going, we're going to hang out with Sam a little bit. And now I'm at four. You know, and I think it's beautiful how God doesn't put things on people's shoulders they can't handle. And it's when we have other people telling us to add to that instead of the Holy Spirit telling us to add to that that we get distracted. Focus on what God's put in your life. Verse 21. Then they went to Capernaum and immediately, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he taught. He could do that. These ancient synagogues, anybody like, Whoever taught on a Saturday was generally the person with the most knowledge or the most senior rabbi in the town because they would visit different towns. Um, Great image of this in The Chosen where Nicodemus is out to visit. Well, if Nicodemus is in town, Nicodemus gets to talk on Saturday. And it just worked that way. So Jesus comes in and he stands up to teach. The immediately word in verse 21 is likely that immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. In other words, he jumped in before Nicodemus could get his turn. Like, he just stood up and started teaching immediately. He didn't wait for them to figure out who the most senior guy was because he's God. (laughs) He clearly isn't going to worry about competition when it comes to his senior status. So he immediately enters the synagogue and starts teaching. I think that's funny. I've never walked into a church and then just walked up onto the stage and opened the Bible and started teaching. But that's the image you get in 21. This guy just walks into the synagogue and opens the Bible and starts teaching. And they're like, whoa, we had to do songs. Nope, he's just going to start teaching. He breaks all their rules. Verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. Like, wow. And he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. I love this. If you go into a church that's not following the scriptures, there's no authority coming from that pulpit. And I don't know if, you know, 
I'm, I'm hoping that there's some authority that you hear, but it's not my authority. It's the word of God coming through as authority. And that, and that I present the scripture and a sense of the meaning, and that's it. And hold myself back. But I've been to a number of sermons where you sit there for, well, they're usually short, praise the Lord. You sit there for 30 minutes and you get done and you're like, I can't remember one word of that. There's no authority in it. Jesus in verse 22, they're astonished. They sit back and they're just blown away, like mind blown. What did that guy just say? That's the presence we get from God. Capernaum is along the Via Maris, that road that connects the three different continents. So when Jesus starts teaching and people are astonished, the implication in verse 22 is that they're going home and telling everybody about it. you got to come to synagogue next week. This Jesus guy might show up again. And when he does, he teaches with authority. So all the towns that we've heard of, save Jerusalem, are in this area. Bethsaida, Capernaum, and Magdala are within eyesight of each other along the coast. So Mary of Magdala and, and Bethsaida, these are all towns right next to each other. In fact, it would probably take you about two hours to walk from one to the other along the coast of Galilee. It would be a nice walk. And this is where Jesus found the disciples. He's just walking the beach, which is honestly just hanging out. And he sees these fishermen coming in off the lake, and he calls them. Peter's house has been excavated. It's, the, it's smaller than this room that we're in right now. It's like a good-sized bedroom. The entire house because in the middle east, in the middle east you sleep inside but you would have like a courtyard outside your house where you would do your cooking your cleaning they didn't have kitchens inside inside was just where the beds were and you spent most of your time outside this meant that in the nice mild mediterranean climate if you had guests over to your house they could just sleep out in the courtyard and they could you know get a few blankets and cuddle up and they'd be good they could even sleep by the fire where the the kitchen had been earlier in the day so Peter's house is in this area. It's likely that as Jesus is walking around Capernaum, and they've already noted that he's from Nazareth, that he would have stayed at somebody's house, and most people believe he stayed at Peter's house. So that courtyard that's dug up under the floating church is the spot where Jesus would have been sleeping when he was at this point in his ministry. About 70% of his ministry is in this part of the world. So for me, when you go on Israel trips, they take a lot of time in, in Jerusalem, but I love when you get to go up to Galilee and spend time there because the God of the universe could pick any place on this planet. He picked a walk along the shores of Galilee. And the second you get to take that walk along the shores of Galilee, you realize why. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's serene. It's peaceful. It's lovely. And it's still lovely. Like for some reason, there isn't a bunch of skyscrapers there. It's still beautiful and naturalistic. They were astonished at his teaching. Skips, what's interesting here is Mark just skips the teaching. It doesn't matter what he said. It mattered how he said it. And he said it in such a way that people were impacted by it as one having authority. That means that it's not just Jesus that has authority, that a rabbi that knows the word of God would have authority too. So Jesus just speaks as one having authority. In other words, there's lots of people that have authority when they teach the word. But Jesus had it and he was a carpenter. That's the difference. He didn't necessarily train under a rabbi though he was cousins with John the Baptist. He would have been close to that family. But there's an authority to Jesus Christ, a presence, a truth to what he said. Jesus taught with authority because he had authority. John 1.1 1, 1 says he was the word and he was with God. So he knows it, he understands it himself, he believes it, and he lives it, just like John the Baptist. 
So to teach with authority has to do with all of those things. You've got to know the word. You've got to actually understand what it says. You have to believe that it's true. Like we're not here to critique the word of God. We're here to teach it. And then you actually have to live it because everything doesn't work. You have no authority if you don't live it. So Mark is intentional with these stories. He's showing a servant leader that's rising into authority. And he does it through the humble acts of service and obedience to God. He's baptized in obedience. He's tempted in the wilderness and beats temptation. He goes out and he calls disciples, but you can see this authority of God taking shape in Jesus' life. Baptism in verse 9, sin in verse 15, in practice in verse 15, in leading in verse 17. Now he speaks with authority in an official capacity in a small town synagogue. He hasn't even got to Jerusalem. Verse 23, he's going to do battle with the enemy, but he leads and he's marked by service throughout. That's Jesus, the ideal servant, the ideal humble person that's rising to authority because of the merit of his works. That is the ideal Roman citizen. So if you're speaking to a Roman citizen, this is exactly how you'd convince them. Small, humble beginnings, courage, strength, victory in combat, and they've risen through the Roman ranks because the Romans prided themselves on a meritocracy. If you were a good Roman citizen, you would rise, and even the simplest of people, even a non-Roman could get Roman citizenship through the merit of their works. So this idea that Jesus rose the same way is the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 1. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. He was an ideal servant. He was heralded by John, God himself. He was obedient in baptism. He was tempted and sinless. He was a rabbi. He preached and he taught with authority. This is all set up for what's going to come in the next verses. So that's what's coming. He has authority over everything, not just authority teaching the word. He's got authority over the wind and seas. He's got authority over demons. He's got authority over sickness. And Mark's going to build that case very quickly as we get into the book of Mark we're going to see the good news of Jesus Christ. This is good news that he's arrived, and it's good news that he's here, and it's good news that he's here to serve us. And that's what God did. He came to create, create a way into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Mark as a humble servant, um, helping Peter write down his story, helping Peter uh, share the gospel through the years, not just through... Um, his contemporary um, life. Lord, we thank you for um, Mark's faithfulness in presenting a gospel uh, that was like uh, Peter's kind of style of talking and preaching. Uh, and we can get a taste of that as we go through it. Lord, we thank you even more for the good news of Jesus Christ, that you came and you died for our sins. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room uh, that we turn from our sins and we don't just do it once, we do it our whole life and we just run from them, Lord. And we turn to you, that there can be a metamorphosis in our lives, that we become something different, so different that some of the disciples were given different names, or that we're not that old person anymore. We're something new, and we're a new creation in Christ. So we thank you for that opportunity and that offering. And Lord, I just pray that each person in this room chooses to do that every day as a journey for their whole life. Lord, help me. Um, Lord, I pray just humbly before you, help me to continue to turn from sin every day, uh, to be someone who just pursues you and that my heart seeks after the things of God instead of the next TV show or the next empty idol that this world has to offer. But I just pray that you um, 
turn my heart and move it towards you each day. Lord, we want to seek first the kingdom of God and know that all the other things you're going to add, Lord, you're going to take care of them. So we pray you bless this fellowship, bless the food we're going to eat upstairs. Uh, Lord, may the fellowship here be sweet and may it be a just an offer of worship, Lord, that you can have in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.